Yeah, that's that's a, that's a good uh, that's a good uh, note to record on. Yeah, right. I, I just, feel like that. <laughs> the past ten to fourteen days, I feel like that. Welcome <laughs> yeah. to the episode. I'm so glad you're yeah. starting to feel better. That's that's really awful. Yeah. Wait, is this our first episode recorded in the new year? Yes. Yeah. Right. Really, yeah. 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 yeah this right. is the, I'm, I'm not gonna lie. Bad. It's been so long. I don't even know what the intro sounds like anymore. I know. I feel I'm like, like I've about to make it November, up all over again. <laughs> yeah. 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 What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Beam Radio. You guys are actually listening to the very first Beam Radio episode recorded in this new year, 2022. We are so excited to be back at it and uh, back with our listeners. So today I am joined by co-host Bruce Tate. Welcome, Bruce. Hi from Chattanooga, Tennessee. The last Beam Radio episode for a while from Chattanooga. That's right, because Bruce is, I was going to say hitting the open ocean, but that's not quite right. Hitting the open riverways of this great right. country and we are also joined by alex kumos hey alex howdy howdy it is so nice to see you alex we're very glad that you're starting to feel better um i know that you did have a couple rough weeks with covid so we're so happy that you're here me too it is it is good to be back on the the beam radio yeah all right so we've got a great topic for you guys today but before we jump right into that a couple of our usual notes. First of all, what is new with Graxio, our fabulous sponsor? Bruce, any updates? Yeah, so I'm really excited now. We get to revise some of the some of our earlier videos. And that's exciting to me because that means that the Elixir community has been active and vibrant, especially the one around Live View. So I have just finished recording the whole batch of new videos. I think the, the previous Live View had 19 videos and this one this pass through i think had 20 or 21 so it's really been a lot of fun going going through this uh, after after writing about it with you sophie and um and seeing all of the intense work that's gone in by chris mccord and the rest of the live view team so if you're if you're listening thanks for that and you should see those updates on groxio soon very cool. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, I've, I've definitely have a similar experience with some of the live view updates. At first, I was, I'm not gonna lie, I was a little overwhelmed because there were so many new things coming out in live view. Maybe going back now till like October, and uh, you know, it meant a non-trivial amount of changes for the book that's out in beta now. But as soon as we started writing that code and revising those chapters, I just kept thinking like, oh, this is so much better. This is so easy to use. This is so great to work with. So. I'm really excited for our listeners to check out the new live view videos in particular on Graxio, um, and of course, to get the new edition of programming live view when it comes out soon. Yeah, and that's the tension. That's You can either write about something that's being developed, and it's harder. It's much harder on the authors, but I'm so glad that in Elixir, we don't we don't fear that process we because that supports early adoption and i think that's that's a really important gift to to give the community so um thanks for all your work on that sophie yeah yeah likewise and that's something that i really appreciate i know we've said this before um but i really appreciate this about chris mccord and the rest of the phoenix team and the live view team it's a group of people that are so connected to and so in dialogue with the rest of the community and are so open to evolving the work they're doing based on that ongoing conversation. And I think that's a really rare thing that makes our community really dynamic and makes the technologies that we're building and using really dynamic and definitely helps with adoption. I think one of the nice things is while at times like, uh, you know, developments in the Elixir ecosystem might seem 
slow or, or uh, you know, delayed. I think a lot of the decisions that are made are very deliberate and well thought through. And that's where we see that. And usually once the community, you know, or a library converges on some sorts of uh, patterns, you can usually rely on those for, for a long, uh, a long time. So hopefully, uh, you know, these, uh, you know, this new Heeks templates, it's, uh, are, it sounds like that's what was the biggest uh, rewrite for you guys. We'll, we'll stick around for a long time. And uh, have you guys like seen the value in Heeks over, over Leaks templates? And, you know, I'm, I'm actually kind of curious because I, I, I still have some quote unquote legacy live view apps that use Leaks. So I'm, I've, uh, I've been debating going back and then converting those to Heeks templates. Do, do you guys see a lot of value in those? Are they super handy compared to, to Leaks? Yeah, it's it's interesting because I did this series uh, called, it, it was basically the Tetris game. And I, I think I called it quad block to to say, you know, just so I wouldn't get sued. The, no the, you know, probably, infringement there. You know, probably, probably I would. I, I, I probably would anyway if we were on anybody's radar and we tried to sell it. But, but what I tried to do in that series is use functions instead of some type of a component model, and that's basically where the Elixir, uh, the Elixir Phoenix team settled. Uh, so. Marlis did this brilliant work with the Higgs templates. And then we had then we had this kind of shift away from the stateless components that had a lifecycle all their own to something that's just a function. And that is so incredibly powerful. And the second thing that we noticed was that so the thing that that live view components was always able to offer was you could always think about an elixir application web application as a function you know, it takes a url some parameters and returns a string but live view is different because it's not just a request response thing you also have this action so thinking through the thinking through the two models was was really important for the community first how do you capture this idea of action how do you capture the income inbound events how do you capture changes to that state in such a way that you could establish state in the first place, but also change when there's an, there's an update in the way that a component's being rendered. And so I think that that stuff stayed pretty much static. The thing that we actually noticed a lot of improvements in is the kind of the, the way that you express an opponent so that you could have an upper class button with a button module behind it. And you could pass through uh, something that looks like HTML attributes rather than having to go through this, this live render and, and all that kind of stuff. And that stuff is still in progress. We're starting to see more and more of those changes, but my goodness, the expressiveness of live view has, has increased dramatically. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I think the biggest change for me wasn't the switch to Heeks, which is nice. Like it's nice to have a lot of the niceties that go along with Heeks. The HTML validation is definitely very nice to have when you're just kind of in that development workflow. But I think the biggest change was this introduction of the function component uh, as opposed to the stateless component. And, you know, I, I won't get too into it here, but I just so agree with what you said, Bruce, that the way that it's so eloquent, it composes so nicely. Um, but I do think it's a little bit of a shift in thinking. Um, if you're 
more experience with the older stateless components. And I think even just that syntax of understanding, um, you know, that you're just invoking a function here within your Heeks template and something that I know that people have been, I don't want to say struggling to grasp, but finding a little bit more challenging is some of the out of the box uh, function components that now come baked into live view, like the form function component, which is new, um, or even the new live component syntax, which is just a function component actually under the hood. So um, I found that to be kind of challenging when I was revising some of our stuff and just thinking about it differently. I know that Steven actually was asking me a bunch of questions about this when he was looking at some of the change log stuff a little while back. So inspired by um, the revision of the components chapters that we did, you and I, Bruce, for that, for the book, I actually have a blog post out now that we'll add to the show notes that just kind of gives you like a little snapshot of what it's like to work with function components and live components and layering them together. So if you absolutely can't wait for the new edition of Programming Live View, which is coming out soon, uh, you can check out this blog post for a little bit more of a taste. And on that note, let's switch gears to our main topic for today. Our host with the most today is Alex. So I don't want to put words in your mouth. Why don't you take it away and let us know what we'll be chatting about? Yeah, sure thing. Um, so when I started uh, writing Elixir about five to six years ago, um, this is a bit of a trip down memory lane. And uh, and uh, yeah, I, I want to. I was kind of reflecting how I, as an Elixirist, have evolved, uh, evolved over the uh, the years, but. Um, yeah, as I was programming Elixir and getting into uh, the Beam, I would often avoid uh, you know, Erlang and all the standard libraries uh, at all costs, and kind of look for, you know, Elixir-y wrappers around those libraries, uh, just because I thought that was the you know the, the the right thing to do, so that everything looked Elixir-y, everything you know worked the pipe nicely. Um, you know, I, I thought that's that's how it should be done. Uh, you know, but as I uh, as I became more comfortable with uh, you know Elixir and the Beam, uh, I, you know, I really started to question uh, that assumption, and little by little, uh, you know, as opposed to bloating my mix.exs file, uh, you know, I would I would delve into uh, Erlang directly and and start using the you know the the tools that we had at our disposal, uh, you know, just by using the uh, you know colon uh, atom dot operator, uh, and it turns out it wasn't as as scary as I, I made it out to be. And um, there was there was a lot in there, there's a lot in the the standard Erlang library at your disposal, so it's uh, it's a really really good tool to to get familiar with. Uh, not to mention a lot of the times the Elixir wrappers would either be out of date, um, you know, they would be kind of abandoned. A, you know, a lot of these things are sometimes like one of the first packages that people write and uh, and deploy, and they they kind of fall out of date with what uh, what's in the Erlang uh, standard library. One example that comes to mind was I was using the um, the queue data structure, and there was some library that I think was published like 2014 or 2015, early days, and it was abandoned since then. And, uh, you know, it's it, it doesn't feel good to really rely on a, on a library that's uh, that's out of date. Yeah, and as as you get familiar with uh, you know the Erlang docs, the, you know they may not look as pretty as the the hex docs that we have, but there is some really really good information in there, and it often gives you a lot of great insight as to how the Beam works, how a lot of the underlying constructs of of, of Erlang work, and it, it gives you that insight as to you know what what we could expect from uh, you know from our Elixir code a lot of the times. Um, so yeah, per, you know, programmer or you know, ergonomic, ergonomics aside, uh, you know, it's important 
that we leverage these tools because you know we get things like uh, you know the crypto module ets and debts uh, there's plenty of uh, data structure uh, modules like digraph uh, we get state machines we get uh, all these distribution uh, related modules like erpc and pg so uh, that's kind of what i want to talk about today is what are some of these these hidden gems that we we take for granted because we're always uh, you know looking at the hex docs as opposed to the Erlang docs, and uh, what you know what have you guys used in your in your day to day Elixir development that's really really helped you out? Yeah, before we get into that too much, I would love to ask you a couple of questions. Is that okay, Alex? Yeah, go for it. So the first one is I would love to kind of capture for posterity your beginning. The beginnings of your dive in, into Erlang. What did that look like? How how did you get started, and what types of value did you see as you started to learn Erlang? Yeah, for sure. Um, so it, it came out of necessity, uh, mostly for the data structures, because in in the uh, the Elixir standard library, like we get you know enum and we get you know task modules and agents, and so we have a lot of these higher level abstractions. I feel in Elixir. And, and rightly so, uh, you know, the Elixir core team didn't go ahead and re-implement the entire uh, Erlang standard library in Elixir. Uh, I think that would have been a, 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 you know, a foolish endeavor to go down because then you're on the hook for maintaining that forever. So instead, they, you know, they gave us this ridiculously easy interop with, with, uh, with Erlang. And um, that's, that's really where the necessity came from is where I needed these, uh, you know, these, uh, these data structures like, uh, you know, graphs and, uh, and queues and, and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I looked for, for libraries kind of like I mentioned, <clears throat> I'd find these, you know, light Elixir wrappers. And as I, you know, dove into the library, I was like, these are, you know, these are very, very small wrappers. There's no reason to even, you know, to even reach for this tool. Uh, you know, and incur that cost of pulling a new package in and, and having to uh, understand how it works and its, its nuances. Um, and then, yeah, then from there, uh, it was really the Erlang docs that I was just like, you know, sifting through every once in a while and kind of saying, oh, what else, you know, what else exists? Oh, what's this? And I'm just kind of randomly reading. And actually, I think it was about maybe like a year ago now that I was doing that like Elixir Twitter tip series. Uh, a lot of the, the Twitter tips uh, just came from looking at the Erlang docs and, and trying to, uh, you know, spread the good word of Erlang to, to, to people and show them how they could easily interop with, with, uh, with Erlang modules right from Elixir. And so I think that so much of this is related to culture. If you start using Erlang from a very early um, from the very early days of your Elixir experience, it becomes second nature. It becomes part of what you do. So today I finished up teaching a class of pretty new Elixir developers from Python and JavaScript and Java. I think that the person who's been using Elixir the longest was about four months, but I got to help establish some of the early thought patterns. And, and one of the things that I did was I would dive into some of the some of the Erlang terminology and some of the I would provide some of the Erlang history. Um, when we were starting Gen servers, we do assist.get state. We do we would play a little bit with um, with state machines. We used observer. And so um, now one of my main questions to you is what are some of the things in Elixir that have Erlang roots that you might not necessarily know? Let me provide one example. 
we were in IEX and I typed exports and then a module name. And one of, one of the students asked, well, what is exports? Well, in Elixir, we have public and private functions and Erlang, the public functions are the one that you export from a module. So what are some of the other things that you see bleed through from Elixir, from, from Erlang into Elixir pretty naturally? Yeah, I think, I think the, the most obvious and the biggest one is probably gen server. Like if you, if you look at the docs uh, on gen servers, like on the Erlang docs, uh, you'll find that a lot of the information that you find there is also, you know, relayed on the, uh, you know, the, uh, the Elixir hex docs versions of, of gen server. And um, yeah, I think they're like that, that's a one-to-one -one kind of uh, conversion and slash abstraction. And a lot of times there's some things and I, I can't remember, I can't remember what it is. It's, it's some like hidden callback that's not necessarily in the, uh, the Elixir uh, gen server docs, but you do, you do find it on the Erlang docs. And um, if I recall correctly, it's like a, it's a callback when you're using um, uh, registries so you can start it via and um, yeah, stuff like that. Via tuples. Yeah. The, but, but there's, I'll have to look it up. I mean, we'll put it in the show notes, but there's some callback um, to like automatically start it, like when you, if you're doing it with a, like a, a dynamic supervisor, but um, yeah, there are, there are plenty of hidden gems in the, the Erlang docs, even for things that we use every day on the, uh, the Elixir side, right? Like gen servers, uh, you know, are pretty commonplace in, in Elixir land, but if you, if you want to dive even further and, and even learn about maybe some design philosophies, uh, diving into the, the Erlang docs for those things, I think will, Will, will be very beneficial. Yeah, another um, nice entry point I would recommend to anybody that's interested in maybe dipping their toes into reading some Erlang code is just looking at the ETS implementation. And I know that some of my first experiences reading any Erlang code period were, um, what is it? So when um, Phoenix Live Dashboard first came out, I was kind of peeling back the layers of the telemetry modules. And one thing that really su surprised me, and I think I probably mentioned this before in other contexts, when you look at the language around Elixir telemetry, it's a lot of talk of like um, emitting or publishing events and subscribing to them in order to respond to them. So I just assumed, oh, PubSub under the hood. But if you look at the source code, it's not PubSub, it's ETS. And at first, like, I was a little intimidated because this would have been probably the second time ever in my life that I had even considered needing or wanting to read some Erlang. And I found that coming out of Elixir, it was easy enough to follow. And it was actually kind of an empowering experience to realize that I could read through these lines of code, that I could start to grok them uh, and find them useful in the work that I was doing. Yeah, it's actually fun, funny that you mentioned uh, telemetry as your first foray into Erlang because that was that was the first, and I think maybe the only PR that I made to any uh, Erlang project was telemetry. I wrote the um, uh, the span function back when it was first being uh, discussed. Yeah, and, I remember uh, when you put that out, and I was like immediately very grateful and excited about it, and I just felt like, oh my god, I know that guy who built this <laughs> thing that I actually need to use immediately. Yeah, luckily, luckily Jose was there to to help out because I I have to admit my first Erlang code was 
like unidiomatic and, and terrible, but uh, like the, the bones were there. And then, you know, uh, Jose really took it the rest of the way and cleaned up that PR. But um, it, it was it, like, it, it's not as scary as it, as it seems initially. Like, um, you know, you, you have to get used to the commas and the periods as like, you know, full statements and stuff like that. But it actually reads quite, uh, quite nicely, especially if you've done Elixir for, um, you know, I'd say, you know, over six months, it should it should be readable, right? Like, you, I don't think you're going to write a whole web backend in in, uh, in in Erlang without reading a book or, or uh, really diving into it, but it'll at least be understandable and consumable. And so, it's good to dive into those libraries and really really see how their inner workings are. I'm curious to hear maybe just a little bit more about what your first experiences writing Erlang were like. I, I've only ever written just a tiny bit of Erlang uh, once in my life, and it was essentially to build an Elixir wrapper, like you were saying, you were doing around some Erlang functionality in the crypto module. And it was just a, such a small amount of codes. So I hesitate to say that I even like wrote Erlang, but my experience of it was very much like, okay, I'm just writing Elixir, but the syntax is a little different. Uh, and I think that if you were to dive deeper than perhaps I had an opportunity to do, uh, maybe that's the case, maybe it's not. So yeah, what's your take on it? I'm not sure I'm the right person to answer this question because I, I too, like you, have done mostly, you know, small things here and there. Uh, I haven't written like any you know, large scale uh, Erlang applications, although I did pick up a copy of uh, Joe Armstrong's uh, Programming Erlang. Um, it's kind of like a like a Christmas present to myself. So I, I will be working through that and uh, and really, really diving more into Erlang. But um yeah, like it was, it was just kind of small things. I think the first bit of Erlang I ever needed to write was uh, I needed to write a RabbitMQ plugin. Uh, I don't remember the the context or, or what it was, but it was like some maybe it was like a cron job plugin for for Rabbit. I don't know. We were like uh, we were constrained architecturally, and this was the best way to do it, quote unquote. Um, as as dirty as that sounds, writing a plugin for for Rabbit for just cron jobs, but. Um, yeah, I remember just you know reading a reading a tutorial. I had been doing Elixir for like a couple of years at that point, and uh, just copying and pasting some some Erlang code uh, that uh, you know implemented all the behaviors to to be a a RabbitMQ extension, and then um, yeah, just kind of leaning on that Elixir experience to know you know how does you know how, how do I make a map? How do I make a list? How do I recurse and yeah, it wasn't, it was, again, it wasn't as bad as I, I, as I had built it up in my head to be. So I think that there are some idiomatic things that we do in Elixir, like we use a pipe. And we also have, we can rebind the same variable name. And both those things show up in Erlang as a bunch of assignments, right? Like if you're building a shopping cart, you might have cart one equals whatever, and then cart two equals whatever times the tax, and cart three equals. In some of the prettier Erlang that you see, some of those intermediate values become possibilities and points where we can drop in notes, right? We can, we can name concepts along the way. And so I really sometimes appreciate that about Erlang. The other thing that I think is interesting to me is that I do miss some of the abstractions from Elixir. So it helps me appreciate Jose's great mind and how he, how he edits, right? So there are some things 
that you would see over and over in in Erlang. Early on, when somebody would write a gen server, they would mostly use Emacs because, well, they wanted the macros, and er, and Erlang didn't support macros, but Emacs did, right? <laughs> so you would have the gen server key, and you would have all of the supporting ceremony that we tend to get in macros. And I think that the other thing that was really cool was Jose's foresight to that 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 keywords were not enough to represent key value lists and the foresight to negotiate with the Erlang team to actually bake maps into the language before he took Elixir forward and got to 1.0. I think that, that those were kind of pivotal things. Yeah, for sure. And it, it's great to see how the, uh, the evolution of the Elixir language has uh, given back and, and kind of moved the the Erlang uh, language forward. Um, I mean, you mentioned maps, and it's it's kind of hard to think that uh, you know maps wouldn't be there if uh, you know, maybe the Elixir team didn't push it uh, forward. And then you know we, now we have uh, inter you know operable documentation between Elixir and um, and Erlang. Uh, like it's it's it really is interesting to see how how Erlang is being pushed forward because of a lot of these other Beam languages. I know, uh, you know there's a bit of interop now between like Gleam, we have LFE. So it's it's nice to see that this is becoming like a very cohesive ecosystem um, versus, you know, in, in a lot of other ecosystems, even though maybe the languages are based on the same thing or, you know, one transpiles to the other, that there seems like there's a bit more friction between those those communities. But, um, and, you know, maybe this is just ignorance from the the outside. But I do like the fact that it's you know we do have a tight knit community even if we are using different languages but we're still uh, we're still all on the beam. Yeah, and I think Elixir's interop with Erlang is definitely one of its selling points because I think you can say that there's pretty much nothing you can't do in Elixir because if you can't do it in Elixir, you can just drop into Erlang directly in your Elixir program, and you know there's nothing stopping you from filling those holes. So I'd love to ask you, as we're kind of closing down, um, some rapid fire opinions about um, individual libraries that have kind of been pivotal to us all. Um, and so Sophie and I can, can drill you on a few of these. I love ETS. Why would you use ETS rather than keeping your values in something like a gen server? That is an interesting question. I was actually going to ask that to you guys, uh, <laughs> but you beat me too, Bruce. Yes, I think um, so. How I've I've used ETS in the past is um, whenever I need to have state that is uh, accessible from all other processes, kind of concurrently, as opposed to blocking on you know making a handle call to a gen server. And so usually I'll start off with keeping all state inside of the gen server. And if I see that that's not you know that's not quick enough, or maybe uh, you know. Call, handle calls to that gen server are uh, you know kind of stacking up and the message queue is building, then I'll say, okay, maybe it's time to extract that state and get it out of the gen server and uh, into, into ETS. So I'll still have that gen server be like the owning process of that ETS table. And uh, usually anytime that the, the state needs to be mutated, it'll happen inside of the, you know, the safety of a, uh, of a handle call, which is, uh, which is synchronous. 
but then all writes are, are uh, you know, you can kind of just go around the gen server process and you read right out of right out of ETS. But it really, it really depends on the the context, right? Like if you need those guarantees of completely atomic, uh, you know, reads and writes, um, you know, stick to having your state within the gen server and then find ways to maybe like horizontally scale those gen servers. So like, you know, use registries and dynamic supervisors and maybe, you know, every in independent entity has its own, its own process and state, and then you kind of disperse the, the load. Um, but yeah, if, if you, if your architecture has maybe a lot of uh, concurrent uh, reading and you're not necessarily worried about getting maybe stale data every once in a while, uh, reaching for for ETS is a, is a great way to to increase your your throughput and performance. But maybe I'll toss that back to you guys now. When do you reach for ETS, and how do you uh, how do you architect around it? I think that's exactly the right answer. It's it's really about um, about tr atomic transactions versus it's what your asset requirements are dictates your solution. I'll ask a second question. So we were. We were talking about interprocess communication when we started working on our um, nerves book together. Um, what can you tell us about PG? So what was it PG was the original one. Then there was PG two, and now they're back to PG. If I remember the the evolution of the uh, the PG modules in in Erlang, but yeah, PG is the most up to date version of of uh, process groups. Wait a minute, I think they've gotten all the way up to PG thirteen. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, that's bad. Bad joke. But um, yeah, so uh, PG is actually what um, what Phoenix PubSub under the hood uses. And it's a way of, uh, of communicating, uh, you know, to a process group, that's actually what PG stands for, uh, and, and, and dispersing messages across all of the, uh, the processes that are part of a group. So if you think of, uh, you know, PubSub, if you have a whole bunch of, uh, you know, subscribers to some sort of a topic, they're all gonna be part of that PG group. And if some you know some event needs to be uh, uh, dispersed across all of those uh, those processes, the whole PG group gets the uh, uh, gets the message, and they can all they can all act on it. Uh, yeah, PG is is great for uh, you know when, when you need to have interprocess communication and uh, and uh, you know maybe synchronizing state across processes and, and stuff like that. Are there some underutilized facilities of the Beam? in the Elixir ecosystem, like maybe hot code deploys or something? Yeah, I feel like that's a, uh, that's a bit of like um, a forbidden magic, if you will. And it's, it's actually one of my weak points, mostly because a lot of the times, like the environments that I'm, I'm deploying to and running on uh, don't necessarily like allow me to do that. And that's not an excuse. I should be writing cool blog posts about this, but this is how I rationalize it to myself. But yeah, I really wish uh, I really wish I played around more with maybe some hot code upgrading and just you know, as opposed to using uh, you know a stateless container environment like Kubernetes or ECS or something like that. Yeah, maybe go go for the old-fashioned route of maybe just a raw virtual machine that uh, that starts the Erlang uh, or the uh, the Elixir project with like system D or something and then maybe hot code deploy uh, you know goes goes that route um, I, I think there's a little bit of like confusion there with the switch from uh, distillery what was this like two three years ago now be between distillery and, and elixir releases um, if I recall correctly distillery had a lot of uh, like built-in, niceties to build those uh like those rel files for you 
so you don't have to build them by hand. So maybe it's maybe it's like an education problem. Maybe we need more blog posts and tutorials on, you know, maybe how do you write a rel file from uh, or, or uh, you know app up and rel up, uh, you know, from scratch? Are, are they as scary as uh, you know as we make them out to be in our heads? Um, so <clears throat> that is definitely something that I wanna I wanna explore more. Um, but on the other hand even in stateless environments like you know kubernetes or ecs the beam gives you such such great uh, you know, support that you could you can actually have stateful applications in stateless environments and they i mean they run great i mean if you pair say your um, your elixir app with the you know, lib cluster and uh, uh, you know or horde or something like that you know, you could you could transition state from a container that's going out of rotation to a new container, and uh, you know your your application really never misses a beat, and you have all this state that's still uh, you know fresh and and uh, and uh, you know easily accessible. So I think uh, even even in environments where you can't use all of the Beam, you still get some really really cool tooling to to use it in some very interesting ways that are you know very unique uh, to Elixir and, and Erlang that you can't really do anywhere else. Yeah, I feel like Brian Hunter has scarred us for life. We all have FOMO after listening to his talk on hot code deployments. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But uh, yeah, I really, I really wish there was some more, uh, some more information there. I'm curious if maybe you know, programming Erlang, Joe Armstrong's book covers that, and I can, I can fill those gaps. <laughs> Yeah, I would love to see more resources on that topic. I think the prevailing narrative around the community is very much that it's scary, it's hard, it's inherently complicated, and you should only do it if you absolutely need to. And so people will go to great lengths, perhaps too much of great lengths to avoid finding themselves in the situation where it's really justifiable. So I've only done it a handful of times. I thought it was complicated and hard, but I think that that uh, probably doesn't have to be true. And I think more resources would really, really benefit the community. So yeah, Alex, write some stuff. Demystify it for all of us. Um, but on, Yes, perfect. On that note, on the note of resources, um, question for Alex, or I guess any of us, resources for folks that want to learn some Erlang. You've already mentioned Joe Armstrong's book. I'll throw out Learn You Some Erlang for Great Good, which you can read for free online, or you can buy it. Um, I haven't read all of this, but I loved it because I thought it was very funny and the illustrations are really weird and great. And um, reading parts of this book has have definitely helped me understand the beam better, which makes me a better Elixir programmer. So I, I would love for our listeners to check it out. Yeah, so the other one by Fred is, I think it was by Fred, was it Erlang and Anger? That's that's also a that's um, a that's a great resource for especially if you're problem. if you're doing it in production and you got problems. It's in Fred's book there. Yeah, that one's that one's a free uh, PDF you can download. I don't think it's actually in print. And he also has a crossover book for Erlang and Elixir on testing, specifically property based testing. Uh, and I think that that's a great introduction to Erlang because it's mm -hmm. it it has it lets you dip your toe in, in both sides of the pool without, without diving all the way in. I will plug seven languages in seven weeks, uh, just because I think that this was one of the inspirations for, um, for Elixir, uh, that Jose actually mentioned that in a tweet um, after reading it. 
the languages in the book, the treatments are not all up to date, but what it does give you is a good cross-section of what was happening around 2010 when, when Elixir um, evolved. Uh, it, gives you, it gives you a good understanding of solving a non-trivial problem and some of the foundational languages for Elixir, which is Prolog and, and Erlang, but also it provides a cross-section of languages uh, functional languages that were around at the same time, Clojure and Haskell and Scala. So um, if you kind of want a good cross-section, a good like bird's eye view of what was happening with the forward by Joe Armstrong, check out Seven Languages in Seven Weeks by me. On that note, I think this is a great time to wrap up with so many resources for our listeners to check out. And also we want to hear from our listeners. We want to hear from you guys on Twitter at Beam Radio One. Um, of course, I'll plug the process mailbox, ask us questions, and we'll answer them. But we also want you guys to dig into the stuff that we're talking about. Um, if anybody reads these resources or has other stuff to recommend on how to learn Erlang, let's hear it. We would love that. All right. So thank you, Alex, for hosting us through today's excellent conversation. Thank you to our sponsor, Graxio, Career Fuel for Programmers. And we will catch you guys next time on Beam Radio. Oh, and Alex, congratulations for having your first Elixir book. I know, it's oh on God, Amazon that's today. Right. It's so exciting. Yeah, yeah. Ah. It so is cool. on Amazon today. So cool.